right, Chris, what do you got for us? This is a shout out to all the chiropterologists out there who listen the, to our show. The chi, chi what? The, the chiropterologists, the people who study bats. And I, oh, I bats I would, are so cool. I, they are cool. And I thought I, I would I would also subtitle this the the Rosetta Stone. Rosetta being a genus of bat, the the Egyptian fruit bat, to be okay. precise. So there is exactly one person out there who knows what you're talking about. And since we only have two listeners, <laughs> they are not one of them. So either, I was either a vampire or Batman. There you go. Oh, I was there you go. Uh, um, on the web today trying to find a, a cool article to do for our, our funny science, and I saw this great video. Amazing on, and amusing. Wacky. Science. Wow, wacky science. I think it was amazing and amusing. Like, it was either on PNAS or it was on science. I can't remember, but it was a video of bats crashing into aluminum plates that had been hung up in various places to prove that the bat echolocation process requires a rough surface, that if it's a very smooth surface, they whack into it like a mirror. They can't because the, the oh, this cool. is your, this is your, they set that up as an experiment. Yeah, that's they, really they, cruel. They put that them in houses and caves, and also mean. like in the trees near their caves. And the bats would go whacking into them every time. They can't see them that using echolocation. Cool. Oh, I think Pat because needs to get uh, after those guys. The, you know, the, the sound that's instead cool. of like hitting a roughage and bouncing back, it just it just deflects. Anyway, that's not the study you brought. That's not the study Got I brought. It. The study I brought was <laughs> was about a redesignation of the phylogeny of Big bats and little bats in regards to their echolocation. Now, previously, the world of bats had been split into the megachiroptera, the big bats, which are like flying foxes. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? No idea. And the microchiroptera, which are like all the other bats that you see. And the microchiroptera universally have echolocation, and the megachiroptera almost always do not, with one exception, which is the rosettus bat, the Egyptian fruit bat. Are they also blind, the big ones? No, they have excellent eyesight, in fact. And they they tend to hunt at dusk and they eat fruit. So we can't say blind is a bat anymore. They're not blind. They have excellent eyesight and they, they, they find their fruit trees and they eat them by visual identification. Now, the issue for the bat people is where did echolocation disappear in the evolution of bats? Because you've got this, this the mega chiroptera, the fruit bats and the flying foxes, who are what? who do not have echolocation, <laughs> but the, except the for this yes. one, the Rosetta bat, which does. <laughs> yes, and but the way that the Rosetta bat has echolocation is fundamentally different from the way that all of the microchiroptera bats do. So the microchiropteran bats create their click sounds by making sort of like sounds in their throats in sort of a, it's a laryngeal click, whereas the the Rosetta bat makes clicking sounds with its tongue like that. So it's a totally different mechanism of making high-pitched noises, which evolutionary suggests that this was a, a reacquisition of, um, of echolocation as, a, as a, a second way to acquire echolocation, that these are genetically very different pathways, but they both reached the same endpoint. But then they did all these molecular analyses looking at the DNA, and they found that there's this species of bat in the microchiroptera, the clicky bats, that has a weak echolocation uh, that it also comes from the larynx. That means like sounds in the back of its throat. Um, but genetically is closer closer aligned to the megachiroptera and should be in that family, meaning that we now have a third pathway to echolocation. Or that the the this, which is called the... What is the name of this? It's the horseshoe bat. Horseshoe bat. Because it's got this, this curious apparatus on its nose that looks like a series of, of like chicken combs uh-huh. that it uses to direct its clicks. And it has a this is a it has a much inferior way of generating its echolocation compared with a microchiroptera, but genetically it's closer to the megachiroptera. And so it looks like this may be like the echo either a, a, missing a, link. a second reacquisition of of echolocation on the mega side, or that this is on the path way to losing its echolocation because it's a fruit bat and actually doesn't need to see at night because it's not hunting for insects. Huh. And I thought this was really interesting. Fascinating. Wow. Well done. I like it. I Bats. They're so cool. going to have you explain that to me again after the show. Yeah. You know, have you ever read about all the pathogens that are generated in bats because of their body temperature? No. What? Yeah. yeah. Like we a... can talk about that next time. No, but the, the number of odd pathogens like Ebola oh, and yeah, yeah. fever and all the rest of that that come from bats. Is, is because of their body temperature? In part because of their body temperature, yeah. And in wow. fact, it's the Rosetta bat that's implicated as the Ebola vector. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. yeah the the uh, Egyptian fruit bat. Fascinating. 
I'm going to start with Chris. All right, very good. So, you know, I was looking at your desk uh, today, Don, and there was your your back scratcher there, which which brought today uh, to mind <laughs> a uh, the word of, of the day. Curious where this is Ac- going. Which yeah. is acnestis, A-K-N-E-S-T-I-S. Anybody know what acnestis is? Acnestis? It's, it is a, is, the audience is a noun for you Greek scholars. It is the the place on your back that you cannot reach to scratch. The acnestus. The acnestus. I should know okay. that, that definition. Use it, use it in a sentence. The acnestus is a vexing spot ah, in the middle of the night. Well done. Well done. <laughs> yes, it, uh, it comes from the Greek kness, connect, connect, connect. Uh, we don't. Anyway, which keep means, going. Keep uh, going. which means interestingly, cheese grater or spine. Yeah, right. No, uh, obviously. Uh, the, the, the reason this came up is is because I I, uh, I was casting around today for um, fun science, amazing but true science studies, uh, and I was going to do CD 318 is a ligand for CD6 because that sounded like a really sexy title <laughs> no, that people not. would be Long. into. But then I found a much better one, which is about 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 grooming and the acnestus spot on bees. Bees. And, uh, and yep. pollen collection. Yep. Now, I, I, I was not aware of this. But you know, you know, when a flower makes pollen, it makes a finite amount of pollen grains, and, and pollen is a very energy-intense thing to make because it includes all the DNA of the next generation. It's it's a you know it's a, it's the it's the haplotype, and so these these pollen grains are are precious stuff, and bees are incredibly efficient at gathering up pollen. Um, I mean, we think that they are, but I didn't realize how how ruthlessly efficient they are ruthlessly 95 to 99% of a pollen of a plant of a flower's pollen will be gathered by bees now the the that is this great is for the somewhere. bees this because they somewhere. eat the pollen, they feed it to their young. Yep. But it's bad for the flowers because the flowers want the the, the pollen to uh, go and pollinate another flower. Sure. Okay. So in in a way, the bees are are necessary, but they're they're a little bit evil because they're so greedy. And so the plants have come up with different strategies for getting around this, and it has to do with the agnostic spot on the bee. Oh. So it turns out and this is I what these where you're going with these, this. these researchers did was um, using fluorescent dyes on bees. Is that they found that there are, there are places on bees that the bees cannot groom. So if you ever look at a bumblebee that it goes to a, a you know a series of flowers and gathers up all this all this pollen and it catches it on its bee baskets which is like the the the, the you know the, we, the we, joints we've, see, we've seen the, the bee movie. Left. We've seen the, the bee movie. We know. So, and it, yep. it, it creates this great big bubble of pollen, absolutely stuffed with pollen. Um, and that's where most of it goes, but in the process the bee is covered with pollen and it doesn't like this. And so when the bee, particularly when pollen settles on the head of the bee, the bee wants to groom and it's got all these groom combs all over its legs, what it uses to gather up the pollen, and it tries to gather them up into its baskets and, and carry it back. But there are places on it on it what did you cannot reach and it cannot groom, which are basically right behind the, the head or between its antenna or in the sort of the gap between its thorax and its abdomen. I was always wondering about that. Um, yeah, no. And, I, and then in general, I think we were talking about that last stripe, night, right? <laughs> a long stripe across the, mi- the middle of the back and also the middle of the, the midline, dorsal and ventral. And so these are called the, the safe spots for a, uh, for a bee because of the place which get saturated with pollen, but the bee can't groom off and cannot then That's bring cool. home feed. And so it, it actually then looks at the evolution of plants and finds that there are certain flowers which are particularly adept at depositing pollen onto the safe spots and then harvesting them onto the pistil to, 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 um, cool. to fertilize themselves. Very and I cool. just thought that that was absolutely the coolest thing ever. So you can so see Chris, Chris to, goes to the, uh, the amazing. Agnestus. Agnestus, all right. Agnestus. I have already forgotten what it means. Who wants to go first? Well, Chris, I'll, I'll go first. Sure, sure. So I, I, I was uh, thinking about weird science that had that started with the letter B. B. Um, yeah, B. Letter B uh, or B. animal B. 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 Well, actually, animal B as well. So B, the animal, animal B was animal one of them. Insect. So there was, you know, there's a, a flurry of interest about the fact that, that there's a study that came out in Nature that says the bees can count to zero. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that is so cool. And it was right up my alley. Then I pulled the paper and I realized I couldn't understand a word of it. About bees? About, no, the, the, the statistical analysis was so complicated. I, I was like, I, it, it defeated me utterly. Um, so I decided not to talk about that one. So you're not going to talk about bees? I'm not gonna, other than apparently bees can count to zero, that, which was in the headline. And so I've provided absolutely no additional information to what you knew before. Oh, this is so out of character for so you, though. You've the, talked about bees how I, many times? I know. Our I last love, live I podcast. Bees. I know. You talked about bees. bees. Um, I'm kind of 
into bees, but I'll, co- I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring it back on a later <laughs> okay. edition. The second one was brains, though, and I was, I was really interested in this study that came out in, in World Neurosurgery, a journal oh, that I don't favorite. read very often, about uh, trepanation, which is drilling holes in people's heads, like you need a hole in, in your head, like X. My mom always For what purpose? For what purpose? For various purposes. Now, it turns out that the, the ancient Peruvians and later the Incas were masters at drilling holes in people's heads. You're joking. I'm not, and so you can <laughs> learn a lot with, about with, with this. What? Well, they would use a variety of tools, but usually flints, and they would sort of scrape for them away. For what purpose? Uh, for, well, that is interesting, because you can often infer <laughs> the reason that they Isn't drilled it? the hole in the head, and a lot of times it was because there was like a depressed skull fracture, probably because like someone threw a rock at their head, and, and they, you know, they have a you know, the hematoma, so they gotta drain that. But, but it, at least with the Incas, the majority of these hole-boring things were not done in the setting of depressed skull fractures. They were just done for... For funsies. For, <laughs> for whatever, for because they they slept too much or something like that. It's like a, a party I, I, trip. <laughs> to try to cure that, yes. Maybe they wanted a window on their soul. Most oh likely it was probably mental health issues, is my guess, yeah. is that this okay. is treating, treating mental health. Bad humors. Uh, bad sure. humors, yeah. Okay. Anyway, the, you can learn a lot <laughs> from the skulls because, because the, if, if the, you know, if you successfully trepan someone, drill a hole in their head, and they don't die, the bone will regrow. And so you can see that in the skull, that the bone has healed. And so you know that the patient survived because it takes months to do this. So obviously they survived. Whereas if there's no regrowth, they probably did not survive the trepanation. Um, they died on the table, so it was. And you, you have to have a very <laughs> obliging, really wondering where this is obliging going. patient to put up with this, to put it mildly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> not one you anyway, generally volunteer uh, for. The survival rates with the Incas were up in the 90% range. This is astonishing that they, they actually got really good at doing this. And there are individuals that they found their skulls who had like five or six big holes in their head that had, were of different ages. And so they'd done this repeatedly and they had survived them all. It is kind of a remarkable thing. Um, but I actually wanted to talk about Bonobos. So that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, I don't even know what that transition means. Bonobos are chimpanzees, but they're not chimpanzees because they live on the south of the Congo River. And so they cannot, you know, the Congo is a big river. The bonobos are on the south side. The the chimpanzees are on the north side. And culturally, bonobos and chimps are very different, as Don knows. Right? You've seen bonobos. Yeah. They're delightful. Whereas yeah. chimps like will bite in your face. Why, you know? why does Don know? Because he, he lived in Zion. When I was, when he, I was in the Congo for three years, there was, yeah, there were, there was a pygmy chimpanzee colony right next to okay. us. Is this going to relate back to rehabilitated. the thing? I don't know, I, where, I don't know where he's going. Where are you okay. going with it? Well, How many papers are you going to Just two. Yeah. Just this, this one. This is the last one. I got a third one in there. I didn't say anything about the bees. That doesn't count. Anyway, this is called Feeding Decisions Under Contamination Risk in Bonobos in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of Medicine. And they were curious, will bonobos avoid bananas if they are are presented to them in association with feces or dirt? Will will bonobos avoid food food if they're presented in association with feces or dirt? Will they? They will. They're very good at it. And I wow. wish you could see the graph. I wish I people could. online. But they have this lovely experiment where they have sliced bananas further and further away from the banana, which is on top of the, the feces. And the, this is the success. <laughs> and the likelihood that they will eat the banana goes up in a linear, linear relationship function, to the distance from the feces. Increasing function of decreased feces. Oh, no. So the question is whether, whether bonobos would avoid food that are closer to the horrible thing. And the answer is. Yes. Wow. Okay. So now we know that. So now we know. Yeah, there's a whole lot else about bonobos that we are not allowed to discuss. <laughs> there's absolutely true. I think we could have a special right. edition of the podcast about bonobos. I and think we could. bananas and poo. <laughs> Chris, you want to you wanna give us yours? Yeah. So I started on this topic because I'd stumbled in across this paper in science about some academic fraud involving the study of lionfishes. And this individual would collect lionfishes somewhere in Australia at some reef. And, you know, they found a lot of lionfishes, but the locals were like, there ain't that many lionfishes. So they were skeptical. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that when you looked up the, the photographs, a bunch of them were just the same fish reversed. Oh. So it was like, you know, it's like, ah, come on. And the paper got retracted and the author got fired. But it got me thinking again about one of our favorite topics, which is, was, which is intellectual dishonesty. And and I I wanted to to uh, read into the record one of my my favorite examples of plagiarism, 
which is this really kooky concocted story about this British classical pianist called Joyce Hato. Okay. Have you heard of yeah. this? So this I is, this vaguely feel like I've heard this story, it, it, but I don't remember what it is. It's a little bit old. It surfaced around 2007. Yeah. And so, but it, it, is, it is just like a jaw-dropping story of dishonesty. So Joyce Hato was a British concert pianist, classical pianist, who had kind of like a meh career as a performer. And, and there's a bunch of reviews of her actual performances, which were kind of pretty snarky, mm. should we put it that way. So she retired and became a piano teacher and then it kind of disappeared from view. In her late 60s and 70s, she and her husband, who was a recording engineer who had run a number of tiny little record labels over the years, many of which focused on reissuing old p- recordings, <laughs> launched a catalog of her, of, of her oeuvres that included essentially everything in the classical repertoire that you can imagine, including, you know, uh, concertos with large symphonies, okay? And these recordings received just glowing, you know, approbation. I mean, it was just like they were, they were revered. And she kind of came out of nowhere. And then in her late 60s and 70s, she developed cancer and was terminal and continued to record and, and release all these CDs. And so it, it added to this sort of like this sort of almost impossible fairy tale of overcoming adversity to create all these, these works of art in your, in your last years of life. And at the age of, you know, 70-ish in 2006, I think it was, she died. Now... Around January 2007, which is just a few months after she died, there was a, a, a blog post populated by piano audiophiles. And on this post, a piano aficionado writes a post basically saying, you know, I bought this Joyce Hato CD, which had Mozart and Prokofiev and Albanese on it. And I'm listening to this thing, and it's like, I cannot buy that this is the same pianist in all three. Their style is just too different. I just like, this seems too wacky. You know, like musicians, they have their their ways, and they, they you can tell them. They're kind of like fingerprints. It's like someone's voice, you know. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. A soprano would never be, you know, you can identify Maria Callas from Giorgio, uh, you know, Angela Giorgio, like that. I mean, it's it's, you know who you're listening to with piano is difficult because it's it's an instrument, but still the style is mm-hmm. always embedded. You can't hide that. And he's like, you know, I just don't buy it. Has anyone else been suspicious about this? And this led to a big fight online with like the Joyce Hato people like just outraged that this was even being hinted at. Now, this guy actually used a pseudonym because he knew that that, that mm-hmm. lightning strokes were going to come come back his way. Now, on this chat room hiding in the background were a bunch of audiophiles from the University of London who had been working with this computer program called Charm. And they, they had... Sorry, when you say audiophiles, those are not files no, no, in the computer sense. Music. People who love... Uh, got it. Really into classical music. Audio files. Yeah. Audio, got it. audio file. P H I L E S. So they had created this this computer program called Charm, which is which they were uh-huh. using t- uh, to use sort of statistical visualization and actual visualization to chart the evolution of an artist's interpretations of works. Which like, is pretty what awesome. does Yasha Highfoot's l- look like in this three dimensional matrix when he was twenty two playing Sibelius's violin concerto compared with when he was sixty seven playing the same concerto and you can see that Heifetz changed and here's like the statistical visualization of that change and how bloody cool is that? That is really cool actually. Right? How bloody cool. So they were like okay this is really cool and at the time they were were using this charm tool to look at a group of, of a, pianos, a piano recording artists who would re- record a complete set of the Chopin mazurkas, which are apparently fiendishly difficult. And so there aren't that many people who've done them all. And Joyce Hato allegedly had done them all. So she found her way into this short list and they charmed her and boom, the fraud was out because her signature was spot on huh. correlation of, of a coefficient of correlation 0.999 with this, this guy from Belgrade. <laughs> Mm. Who was sort of the unknown but totally brilliant pianist who never quite made it after, after like second place in the Tchaikovsky or something, but was awesome, right? And so she like it was all his stuff. Now uh. that was now like percolating around. Months after this, the, the the plot thickens because this another audiophile, a guy called Brian Venture, gets a copy of Joyce Hato's Lists Transcendental Studies, which he loves, and he pops it into his computer into iTunes, and the the Grace Note program, which picks up and says, oh, you've just you inserted like Beach, Boy, Beach Boys, yeah. right? It recognizes oh. the CD. Pops up someone else. 
on a, you have just uploaded someone else. And he's like, huh? This, this other guy called, you know, Laszlo Simon from Hungary, who nobody had ever heard of, but had like come in number two with Tchaikovsky back in 1978 or something like that. Some other brilliant, unknown young pianist. Bing, that was that one. And so this is now the, 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 the sweater, the thread is coming out of the sweater and the entire thing falls apart and it turns out the entire catalog was plagiarized. Oh. Okay. And so, you know, there was a through lot of- Through the husband? Through the husband. But, but Joyce- had to have been in on the fix, right? Of course. And unless you argue that she never listened once to any of your own CDs right. and said, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like me. You know, it, it is totally implausible that she didn't know. And and like some of them, you know, with an 80 person symphony orchestra, how could you like forget that you weren't there? <laughs> that time we went to Poland and recorded with, you know, you know, Olaf Pentoff and his, and the, 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 the Krakow symphony orchestra, which doesn't exist. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like she couldn't have not known, right. It's just totally impossible. And eventually her husband, Barrington Smith, admitted that like, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I made up the entire thing and I just wanted, I would just love my wife so much. Now that's the Wait, first. Were the, were the, were the artists in on it too? Like, did they know that their work was being? No, they had no idea that they had been plagiarized, uh. but the, the era of digital music caught up with them because the, 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 the scam had been going for about a decade at this point. You know, so we went from eight track, not eight track tapes, tapes <laughs> but we went from records to CDs and, and cassette tapes to Grace Note on iTunes. And that's when the whole thing started to fall apart. Now, the, the part of this that I find is, is remarkable is, is not just that the fraud was so brazen, so like shameless, so long and like, you know, but also the hypocrisy that came about it from the music critics. Okay. So I want to read to you two critics. They are both from a critic called Bryce Morrison. In 1992, Bryce Morrison reviewed Yefim Bronfman's Rachmaninoff III's Concerto. And he said it lacked the sort of ernst and angst and urgency that had endeared Rachmaninoff to millions. And that Bronfman sounds oddly unmoved by Rachmaninoff's intensely Slavonic idiom. In the sunset coda of the adagio, his playing is devoid of glamour. And in the finale's fugue, he lacks crispness and definition. I mean, exactly. This, this could be like a wine review. <laughs> that sounds like it was written by a program. Right? Or like it's got oaky flavors and cherry. <laughs> Hints of asphalt. Hints of as, as exactly. Creosote and nope. <laughs> turpentine. Yes, it's definitely Chopin forward. Fifteen years later, however, we hear again <laughs> from critic Bryce Morrison reviewing Roy, Joyce Hato's plagiarized version of the same recording. Oh. Stunning, truly oh, no. great, among the finest on record with a special sense of its Slavic melancholy. Oh. The fraud I love squared. I love wow. it. Wow. I have to say, I thought, what I thought was going to happen there was you were going to read two <laughs> critiques of two different pieces that were identical. Right. Well, I mean, in this case, the, the hypocrisy yeah. just makes your jaw on the ground and let's say yep. subjectivity. That's wild. It's what got a story. something to it. What a story. Wow. Chris, what do you got? All right. Well, I am, as you know, very interested in vaccines. And I ran across this paper, which is actually not new. It's 2014, written by Reno Rapoli, who was the uh, head of research and development for vaccinology at Novartis in Siena. Mm -hmm. And he's still there, but is now GSK. Someone you've worked with? Yes, yes. I uh, worked with him. He's a very uh, um, sort of impressive scientist. So he had written this paper about the first rabies vaccine by Louis Pasteur back in the, well, when was the date actually? It was in 1882. In 1882. So we, we all know this famous story that, uh, or I think we do, of how Louis Pasteur demonstrated the efficacy of the first rabies vaccine that he had been testing in dogs. And then this, this, this boy, Joseph Meister, was brought in who had been mauled by a rabid dog and everybody knew he was going to die. And so Pasteur immediately gave him the, the, his experimental vaccine that had been tested only in dogs. And Joseph Meister did not die and grew up, you know, had a long, long life and actually ended up being the groundskeeper for the Pasteur Institute until he died in his 80s. Yeah, so it's sort of like a fascinating story. Now, that's the sort of like the high level summary of what happened. And what Reno did was to dig into Pasteur's notebooks. Oh, wow. And to just actually to get, get into the actual mechanics of the experiment and how he did it. So, uh, and a lot of this I had not known. So the way he, 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 he started his research on his experimental rabies vaccine was, first of all, he needed to have a supply of rabies virus that was not in dogs because getting rabies samples from rabid dogs is obviously risky. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> 
That's that is a, that is a so, really bad research so, assistant job. <laughs> so you don't you don't want that job. Nope, nope. So he started with a rabbit dog, which presumably had been sacrificed, and then he took the spinal cord of that dog and desiccated it, and then injected that into the into the, under the theca the fecal sac into the spinal fluid, basically of a rabbit, which is a much safer animal to work with mm-hmm. when you're dealing with rabies because mm-hmm. they don't like attack you and try to kill you. Generally, you just have to keep you know, your fingers away from their little sharp teeth. Sure. And so he, he then was able to prove that he could propagate rabid the, the, rabbit? The, 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 the rabid rabbit. Uh, it's like Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh-huh. um, yep. uh, over time. And so he'd like keep passaging it through the rabbits and could stain it over and over and over. And once he'd done that 20 or 30 times, he then started to take little segments of the sacrificed rabbit spinal cord and then dry them in you know, in the sun, basically, for varying lengths of time. And um, after he sort of desiccated them and dried them for 15 days or so, a couple of weeks, he would grind them up in this mortar and pestle and mix them with water and inject them into a dog to see what would happen. And the long desiccated spinal cord from, from rabbits prevented the dogs from getting rabies. Mm. Okay, whereas if they he dried the spinal cord for shorter and shorter times, like a week or less or a couple of days, that the dogs would get rabies. And so it was all about how long you could dry this stuff up to make it more and more less and less virulent right and so he was doing all these experiments in dogs and he tested it 50 times in dogs and it totally worked in the dogs and then Joseph Meister shows up and you know and and, and he shows up on July 4th uh, US Independence Day incidentally and quite a mess he'd been bitten all over his face and so not only was he going to die but he was going to die soon because the time to death from rabies is is dependent on how long the neurons are so the, the facial neurons the cranial nerves are short they're a couple inches long as opposed to your arm, which is a three feet long, mm-hmm. right? And so it takes a long time to get rabies from a hand bite, and it takes days from a facial bite. Wow. So, I which didn't is, know that. Which is also interesting. Because oh. it's, it's retrograde transport up the axon until it jumps into the spinal cord. And so the way rabies vaccines work, actually, which is a little bit scary, is that they intercept the virus at that synapse. So when it goes up the nerve from your arm, say, and then gets to the spinal cord, it has to then cross that synaptic junction and get into the spinal cord. And once it jumps into the spinal cord, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. There's like, like mortality is at that point, 100%. Yep. And so rabies vaccines work by creating antibodies that block rabies virus in the synaptic cleft, which is like really thin. And so it ha- the, the concentrated antibodies in the synaptic cleft has to be super high and they have to be potent and they have to neutralize it in that like sub-micrometer gap. Uh, otherwise you die, right? And so, and of course, he didn't know the pathology of this. He just knew that his vaccine worked. So he did this, right? And his experimental protocol for for Joseph Meister was to give him dog spinal cord extract that he had been, you know, incubating on his desk since June 21st, which is 15 days before the, the bite occurred. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he would give the next day, he would give them the, he gave Joseph Meister the spinal cord extract that had been desiccated for 14 days. Then the next day, 13 days, then 12 days. And so he was more sort of actually marking, marching forward in terms of less and less, less and less certainty that the extract would not be red hot with rabies Mm -hmm. until he got to like, he was injecting him with dog extract from yesterday, which he knew in the dogs would definitely give you rabies. Right. So not only why is he doing it? Well, because he he was applying the same paradigm that he was trying to go from least likely to be virulent to most likely to virulent as a way of gradually building your immune response up over time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was his theory. We would now say that's totally bonkers. Because why would you ever expose someone intentionally to rabies? But, you know, but he did. And he knew that he was doing this because in parallel, every day he gave a little bit of this extract also to a bunny to see what would happen to the bunny. And the the bunnies that got rabies extract on July 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 were all super good to go bunnies to not develop rabies. But the ones that were exposed from July 11th on, which represented the the five day or the less than seven day desiccation spinal cord extracts, all got rabies. Mm. And Pastor knew in real time that the bunnies were getting rabies as he was still injecting this stuff. And so not only did his vaccine prevent a dog bite rabies, but there was a second sort of challenge, which is that he was administering systematically live rabies virus to these to this child. But it all worked out. But it all worked out well. (laughs) But we will stipulate the IRB was not consulted on all aspects of this protocol. Why did it work out? Uh, well, because the early exposure to the the very long desiccation exposure spinal cord was highly immunogenic, and it wow. led to rabies and neutralizing antibodies. And 
you know, he was good to go. Wow. Quite okay. an experiment. That's amazing. The, the other thing that's sort of like a side is that, that there's a little extract of a picture of, of Pasteur's notebook, which, you know, the can fact you, it was written in French, not with, okay. notwithstanding, <laughs> is also completely legible. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like exactly True. what the protocol was. I just sort of zoomed it up on my webpage. I still couldn't figure out. A, no. You know, something, huh. something happened in June is all I can tell. <laughs> or maybe July. So anyway. All right. Chris, what about you? What do you got? Well, I've got a, a two-part presentation, but the second part is going to be in the next episode. So, okay. so it's like a part two weeks from now. So it's like next summer. Yeah. Two weeks from now. Yep. Uh, they'll get the other, the first part, but the, 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 it, this is a pair of papers that I mentioned to Don before about the uh, transmission of, of respiratory viruses, a very popular topic right now. Mm-hmm. Sure is. So as our listeners will no doubt know, there are, three, Oh, this is the poker game. This is the poker game, right? There are three n- known transmission methods. There's the, you know, the direct I sneeze in your face method. It's believed to be highly efficient. Probably is. Gross, but highly efficient. Yep. There's the indirect transmission, which means I sneeze on something that you then touch and you convey that stuff to your nasal mucosa, to your respiratory mucosa somehow by presumably on your hands. And so that route's called the fomite route. And the fomite means the inanimate object that connects the two of us. You know, I pour you a glass of, of juice after sneezing on my hand, you then get the snot off of the, the glass, and somehow you get it into your mouth. And the glass is the fomite. And the third one is aerosols. Okay. Now, we must admit, humbly, that we don't know much about these transmission routes for most viruses, including coronavirus 19, COVID-19. There have been a lot of assumptions made, however, about how it transmits. And so you will recall that at the beginning of the episode, the dictum was, wash your hands early and often. Yep. Right? Which basically is in implying that the fomite route is very important. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that's reasonable because at the beginning of this, we didn't know anything about COVID-19. And so it's, it's reasonable to take an abundance of caution. Okay? But there yep. was a certain amount of inconsistency in this argument because one would also argue that if you don't know that the aerosol route might be important, you should also, through an abundance of caution, recommend masks. And we did not do that. And so I think that that, that yep. to me sounds like that feels like a screw up in terms of our messaging. And it has turned sure. out to be a big screw up as we have since learned that COVID-19 seems to mainly spread by the aerosol route and only occasionally by the fomite route. And so we got that one. I'm not allowed to swear. It, no. it rhymes with bass backwards. Okay. Mm. So. Um, so you're anti-fomite is what you're telling us. Uh, anyway. I wanted to go back to the source uh, because this question of how did viruses transmit has really not been studied practically anywhere with one major exception, which is rhinovirus, which is the cause of the common cold. So back in the 1980s, there were two really cool experiments that were done looking at how rhinovirus moves from person to person. Now, I remember when I was an ID fellow, one of my attendings told me about this famous paper and said, this proved that, you know, people can get infected by playing cards, implying that the, the, the cards are the fomites. And this was a very efficient way of, of getting rhinovirus. But I hadn't actually read the paper until a few months ago. And when I read the paper, I realized that my attending had got it completely wrong. <laughs> that the paper basically showed that fomites did not transmit coronavirus. And so the way they did this experiment was ingenious. They got 34 male healthy volunteers and they infected them with rhinovirus by squirting it up their noses. And then out of this pool of infected people, they found the eight who were the most infected and they were like streaming the most rhinovirus out of their noses. And then they they had these guys then play poker with a bunch of uninfected volunteers who were in, in several groups. There was the true controls who just played poker like anyone would. And by the way, if you want to know, they played... Stud draw poker, because mm, that's the obvious that. yep. question that comes up. They played stud that draw and study draw. So half of the of the twelve recipients just played poker, and the other half wore an ingenious contraption around their neck, which I think is analogous to a dog cone. Like, oh. Okay, basically preventing them from touching their faces. Okay, it didn't actually look like a dog the co- cone. So the cone of shame. The cone of shame. 
Yep. But it had the same thing. It was like this big sort of plexiglass hood that like was three foot across and allowed you to play poker and you could see through the hood, but you couldn't bring your hands up to your face because the, the, you know, bang into the plexiglass. So you couldn't actually touch your face at all. It was impossible. And the two but, but these guys were infected with rhinovirus. No, no. These are the recipients, right? These are the uninfected okay. Okay. people who are playing okay. poker with the guys streaming rhinovirus out of their noses. So the question is, what are the infection rates in the two groups? Because in the guys who don't have these plexiglass you know, objects on, in fact, there was two sets of apparatus, but I'll get to the second one in a moment, they couldn't get infected either through the aerosol route or through the fomite route. But the other guys could only get infected through the aerosol route because they can't touch their faces, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to see, did these two rates differ? And they did not, basically. There was like 60% approximately 60% in the guys who, you know, had no contraption and the contraption guys had a, an infection rate of around 56%. So statistically no different. Okay. Very interesting. Then they, they repeated this experiment with a different contraption where instead of wearing these cones of shame, essentially, they fixed orthopedic arm braces onto these guys that could only go between 140 and 180 degrees. So again, uh, preventing them from touching their faces because they, they, they're like robots, yep. you know, they, they can't reach that far. And they did the same thing and they got the same results. But the, the permutation on the, the guys with the arm contraptions is that after they had used, you know, they had been playing poker for 12 hours with a lunch break and a dinner break, during which time they were separated from the the recipients so they couldn't infect each other in the cafeteria. The cards by this point and the poker chips had become noticeably sticky and damp, okay? (laughs) Presumably with rhinovirus and snot, okay? So now they took these (laughs) poker chips and these card deck and and all of the furniture that these guys have been playing on, including the chairs and the table, and they moved it into a different room and had a new group of 12 guys play poker in that room with that deck of cards and with those poker chips. And meanwhile, the guys in the the donor room continued to play poker with another set of decks of cards and poker chips to continuously reinfect the deck. And every hour, they brought in the new deck. So they had a constant supply of snot-covered cards and poker (laughs) chips that were freshly snotty. And they played consecutively for 12 hours, and not a single one of them got infected. Oh. So so the the point is, fomites... And they they cultured the fomites throughout these games, and the fomites were indeed teeming with rhinovirus. But no one's getting infected, so the point is... And and they also had people, you know, volunteers wearing masks and gowns to protect themselves who watched the behavior of the guys playing poker to see did they touch their faces and their noses, and of course they did. In fact, in that final experiment where the 12 guys were playing with the fomite, the soaked cards, basically, there was an average of 186 documented face touchings that occurred during that period per person. So people were touching their faces constantly, and they did not get infected. And so what they concluded was that contrary to popular belief, rhinovirus basically transmits through aerosols, not through fomites. And this was this we, was we a can stop washing our hands. Well, this is a different <laughs> virus. It's not COVID nineteen, so we can't we can't directly extrapolate. But the point I'm trying to make is that we made a huge assumption about this virus that led to a specific set of recommendations from our health authorities that that actually were not based on any proof. Yeah. And they completely ignored this other one, which in hindsight was a major gaffe, shall we say. That's pretty cool, Chris. Yeah. And, and so the, the guys who did this experiment back in 1984 were really surprised by these results because it ran against the common belief. And so what they then tried to do the next experiment, I'm going to give you a teaser for part two, was to try to figure out mechanistically why did they not get infected? What was going on here? So we'll come back to that in a, two weeks tell you the rest of the story all right so you got a teaser so everyone's got to tune back in to find out part two and it's a, it's a good one it's this like the godfather 2 it also gets an oscar oh yeah godfather 2 was was the best all right chris it's yours all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about something that has precisely nothing to do with science or public health whatsoever but i but it, it amuses me so much that i wanted to i wanted to take the opportunity to talk about it anyway because we have just gone through what I would call a titanic battle of, of mega egos, i.e. the U.S. presidential election. And I, I, I want to comment on 
a an upcoming anniversary of a titanic ego, which will be on December 17th of this month. And for those of you who don't recognize that date, it is Beethoven's birthday. Mm. Uh, it, this is going to be his 250th anniversary of his birth in 1770. Now, Beethoven was the sort of fascinating character, but one of his many qualities was not his charm. He, he was a difficult, vindictive, complicated, bristly narcissist, right? <laughs> he never got married. There's probably a lot of reasons why. <laughs> now, back in the, the Beethoven day, you know, they had obviously didn't have recordings, so everything had to be done live. And so, you know, composers like Beethoven not only made themselves famous by, you know, writing great pieces of music, but they also made them famous by doing fantastic things on stage themselves to show off their own personal virtuosity. Much in the same way as like we see sort of like, you know, musical duels in the in the, the modern era, like, you know, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa with the jazz, you know, with the, the, the drum battles that they used to do. So back in the day, they would do you know, improvisational battles to sort of show off their prowess. Now, around this time when Beethoven was, I guess this is around the 1800s, very early in the 1800s, probably 1801 or two or three, right before Beethoven had written his third symphony, the Eroica Symphony, there came along this sort of upstart guy called Daniel Steibelt, who was sort of, you know, very flashy and uh, had acquired this this uh, reputation as being a fantastic improviser. And he also had a, had a wife who was very beautiful and played the tambourine and danced. And so there was sort of a, a visual aspect to, to Steibelt's performances. And he made his way to Vienna, where Beethoven was basically, you know, had sort of set up shop and this was his town. And Beethoven was very put out that Steibelt was coming to basically eat his dinner. And so Steibelt had, had come and given this quintet performance with his that that uh, featured this very complicated cello bass line and so at the 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 court of one of the princes that was beethoven's chief sponsor, I guess, if you will, Steibelt was invited to give a, a, a piano improvisation. And he did this by taking the cello part from his quintet and playing it on the piano, just the, you know, the first opening notes, and then improvising on it in sort of a titanic way. And, and observers at the time suspected that he kind of not really improvised it, but had actually planned the improvisation long in advance. But nonetheless, it was a spectacular feat, and he got you know, rapturous applause from this. So then it was Beethoven's turn to do this. And so Beethoven, you know, got up and he took the, the piece of piano of, of, uh, of the cello part that Steibolt had dismissively thrown on the floor because he was going to do it from memory because he was so good, you see. And he picked it up and he put it on the, on the piano music stand and then turned it upside down and then proceeded to improvise on the first several notes of, of the cello line played upside down and backwards. And then he improvised on that and blew everybody away. And so Steibelt, you know, reputedly never came back to Vienna and sort of slunk off with his tail between his legs because he was so humiliated by this. And Beethoven really proved himself. But Beethoven, being a complicated, vindictive, uncompromising man, shall we say, was not yet finished with his revenge against Steibelt. And so when he wrote the Eroica Symphony, and I'm going to play this, uh, just a short excerpt. So I'll, I'll just describe to the audience what, what you're going to hear, first of all, which is this is the fourth movement, the final movement of the third symphony, the Eroica Symphony. And it starts with this fantastic sort of explosion of noise from the violins where they go, and there's a big sort of like climactic bravura of, of, of noise. And then it goes into this weird little dinky, 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 sort of like insipid music, this sort of silly song, right? And the silly song, well, I'll just play it for you, and then I'll explain more. Great, right? It's fantastic. And then this. What the heck? It's a child song. Silly, intentionally silly. Okay, now, the interesting thing about this and the denouement of the story is that that silly song that he plays there 
is the opening phrase of the upside down and backwards cello line that he improvised on to humiliate Steibolt. And he wasn't finished just doing it live. He then wrote his third symphony based on that theme and spent the entire movement turning it into something unbelievable. It's sort of the, the sort of the ultimate, like, you think you're so great. Let me show you what great really looks like. Wow. Boy, that's, that's vindictive. <laughs> Yeah. And in <laughs> fact, it, he, he had done it three times because he'd written two other compositions that kind of led up to this. So he wasn't he, he, he like did it repeatedly. Uh-huh. And in fact, the, the theme, the sort of the dinky, 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 dinky sign is strung throughout the entire symphony, making one think that he probably wrote the fourth symphony last and then put it in sequence as sort of like the, you know, the capstone. <laughs> So. And then he raised his. And then he raised his eyebrows. And then he raised his eyebrows. <laughs> and, and of course, the third symphony is a totally fantastic piece of work. So you know, but he, sort of understanding the history behind that and the politics and the personalities, I think, just makes it that much more you know interesting to listen to. Chris, what do you what do you got for us? Well, well I got a, a, a quickie. I was I was looking for elegant experiments on Google, and the first one that popped up was in the American Physics Society (APS) news this month in physics history, in mm. which was published in June two thousand six, and it talks about the the seminal experiment by the Greek. I don't know what you would call them because they weren't scientists because that term hadn't been invented yet. So we'll say a, 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 a scholar called Eratosthenes, and it was his seminal experiment to try to figure out the diameter of the earth. And and so it, it had been noted. First of all, I should say so that this guy Eratosthenes was, was a very clever fellow who was in Ptolemaic Egypt, mm-hmm. meaning Ptolemaic meaning that, that, you know, after Alexander the Great kind of romped through the Middle East and then died young, his generals split up the empire and one of them, Ptolemy, went off and took over Egypt. And so that whole period of Egyptian history is called Ptolemaic Egypt, which is basically the Greeks running Egypt. And so he was a a Greek living in Egypt and came from some town in Libya, apparently. But he was a polymath and eventually made his way to Alexandria, where he got trained and then was working at the Library of Alexander. So he was Mm -hmm. what what we would call a university professor, basically. Okay. And his nickname was Beta because he was good at many things, but not the best at any. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was delightful. I really Uh, like that. Beta. He was Beta. He was number two. At least he's not Omega. So, um, you know, anyway, he was, he had heard that there is a, there was a dry well in this, in the Egyptian city of Syene, which is now Aswan. Mm-hmm. that on the summer solstice would shine straight down without casting a shadow, meaning that the sun must have been right above it, okay? Mm-hmm. okay. And so he, he figured that, like, if you found, you know, if the world was 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 spherical, which they believed at that time, yep. that if you measured in another well with a stick pointing straight up on the summer solstice, that there would be some deviation in the shadow of the stick. Because in Syene, it should be pointing right down, there'd be no shadow. But yep. anywhere else, there should be a shadow. And then you could measure at... At you know high noon, which even then they could pretty much figure out. You could figure out what the the, the deviation and the number of degrees was in this in the in the in the in the shadow. And then mm-hmm. if you knew the difference between Syene and this other place, which turned out to be Alexandria, you could then calculate the circumference of the Earth, which he did. Mm. And and so the, the the sort of interesting thing about this is that they didn't have have rulers to sort of measure physical distance between these two cities, which were quite some distance away from hundreds of miles away from each other. And so he did it using these guys called bematists, who were architectural experts who had been trained to walk in a stereotypical fashion, such that each stride was identical. Oh. And he had them he had them measure the distance between Alexandria and Syene, and thereby calculated the the circumference of the Earth. To be twenty five thousand, excuse me, two hundred fifty thousand stadia. Now we don't really know what a stadia was. I do not. We don't have like a, a stadia rule book. But so there's there's some argument about how long that how 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 big a stadia was. But based on the estimates of what a stadia probably was, the circumference of the Earth was between twenty four thousand and twenty nine thousand miles, which is pretty darn close because the actual yeah. circumference is twenty four thousand nine hundred. So he 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 really actually kind of nailed it using a stick stabbed into the ground and that applying so cool. basic geometry principles. And I thought that that is like good on you, Eratosthenes. That is, and this guy was called Beta? He was called Beta. But I mean, I think that that's an alpha. Right that's there. an alpha move that's right an alpha. there if ever I heard one. So I was impressed. Very cool. Very cool indeed. 
Chris, what do you got? I'm going to talk about making biscuits because we're coming up to Thanksgiving. Oh, what kind of biscuits are we talking? I'm really talking about cats when they need. (laughs) What? Like British Bake Off? If you've ever had a cat. Yes. No. Many cats do this behavior where they they need. It's like they're kneading the bread. Yeah. They kind of go, and they get really into it. They purr like crazy, and they just go into a trance, and they knead the biscuits. And the British call it making the biscuits, and we call it kneading bread. But the cats probably call it something else. I don't know what it is. But I, my, my cat does this all the time. And, um, you really, really are charming. not talking about biscuits. You're talking about cats. Cats may, needing, making the biscuits. I really thought we were talking about actual biscuits. Well, I suppose if the, if the, biscuit, was, the biscuit dough was soft and furry and comforting, the cats would, could actually need the biscuits. Okay. But what I was curious about is why do they do this? Why do they do this? Well, I, I, I investigated. Mm. And I came, up w- I came up with a series of theories. One <laughs> is that they are recreating the, the behavior of making their bed in the wild where they would like go into a, you know, a grassy area and then they would sort of trample the grass down so they could make a little nest to sleep in. Like dogs going in a circle before they lie down. Yeah, like what, that. Why like do dogs sort of cre- creating the bedding they, space. The dogs before they lie down, they yeah. usually go in a circle. Why? For same reason. They're making their bed. They're, they're, they're finding... Camping down the grass. They're s- really? making themselves yeah. safe. Really? Is that why? I didn't yeah. know that. And there's some, there's some evidence to, to back this up because it turns out that like people who have like, you know, grassy backyards where they don't mow the lawn very often and have cats, that the cats do actually go out into the, into the lawn and trample down little circular areas and sleep in them. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's, there's some theory to that. So I thought, you know, that's okay. So that's one theory. The other one is that perhaps the cats are remembering in some sort of deep way the, the, the behavior to express milk from their mothers, mm-hmm. that they kind of need the abdomen of the mom and mm-hmm. then it creates the milk letdown reflex. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there's some evidence to suggest that too because little kittens do do this to their mothers. And it does release the the milk as as you know as as you would expect. And when the cats do this need making the biscuits thing, if they're sitting on a blanket, they will often suck on the blanket after they do this. So it's kind of like they're they're remembering the whole process of bonding with their mother. And I, I find that at the same time charming and sad because it's charming because it's it's obviously a powerful, friendly, happy emotion for the cat that they're remembering. And it's sad because they're away from their mummies. And that makes me just so want to cry. So that's the second theory. The, the third one is kind of linked to that. It is that the, the cats are trying to, because they often need the biscuits on your lap, which is if you have a cat, this is painful, right? Because you don't want to stop mm-hmm. the cat from doing it. They're just, they're just in, in ecstasy, but they're digging their claws into your thighs as they need the biscuits on your leg. And it, it hurts. But the, the theory is that perhaps this is creating a, like a maternal bond with their owner. And then this is part of the sort of like replacement of the actual mother with the new mother. Interesting theories. A more mundane explanation is that they just like it because it's soft and it relaxes them and they just kind of, you know, it feels good. And there's a certain, obviously, that that's true because my cat, when he does this, tends to prefer to do this in the sun on a very fluffy pillow. So it feels good. And the fifth one is that cats, believe it or not, have scent glands in their hands. Really? And so part of it is believed that they might be marking their territory by sort of putting their fingerprints all over the thing that they they find so comfortable that they want to own. And one veterinarian who was interviewed on this said that she thinks that this has got a lot to do with kittenhood. And she says that only about one in a hundred adult cats will need the biscuits as opposed to kittens who pretty much universally do this. However, in my personal sample of five cats in my lifetime, Oedipus, Cato, Max, Hercules, and Jackson, named after your son, oh, come on. 100% of those <laughs> cats not. needed the biscuits made the biscuits all the way through their lives really yeah maybe it's just because of the insecurity that they feel in the environment that they're living in uh, probably because because <laughs> they're, they're, they're not they're not afraid of me that is for sure my cat is the most in, sort of like bold and un, uninhibited creature you've ever met his best friend by the way is the golden retriever um, moose moose was a puppy and jackson already owned the house and after jackson you know got over his shock and horror at, at, the, at a dog being introduced into his territory and finally came downstairs after about two weeks they became best friends and every single day they play this game of a aggressive wrestling where the dog who's like 70 pounds and the cat is like five pounds go at it full bore wrestling rolling around on the circles batting each other but never actually hurting each other one day the cat got his claws hooked on the dog's lower eyelid and the dog just sort of paused 
mm. in the middle of mid wrestle, right? And then the cat paused, and they both kind of sat down with the, the claws still in, hooked into the, the dog's face. And the cat then gently pulled his claws away and then licked the dog's face. Aww. So sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. That's so sweet. It was, it was just charming. Huh. Okay. So we need to have a very, very long discussion about how this all came about, this whole piece you just did there. You sat down today... At some point last night, last night, and you just thought, "I'm gonna figure out why cats make the biscuits." That's that is. Are you written up in any textbooks anywhere? <laughs> there is got to be a case an study. There's an ICD nine code to go. A case study <laughs> that is Chris Gill. Wow. Chris, what do you, what do you got? Well, I I, I have two. Short things that okay. are 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 loosely at best connected that have to do with hot summers. Okay, and and they they are respectively drinking cold lager beer. Um, yeah, and I yeah, yeah. like lager beers in particular I because I'm, I'm, like I'm not really I'm not really a beer aficionado. My 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 wife has a much finer palate and she loves all sorts of complicated IPAs and I'm I just, an, I'm an I just find them you know bitter and mostly taste like poison to me. Yeah, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I, like I, I don't simple, agree, but I understand. I, I understand. I, I'm a, I'm extremely low brow with my low and brow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, That's that was terrible. Yes. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is watching fantastic movies while you're drinking those beers, uh-huh. and they kind of go together. So I, I wanted to talk about one beer that I particularly like, which is Kirin beer. I don't know this beer. It, you do. It's the Japanese beer that you get at the sushi restaurant. That's got sort of like a flaming dragon monster creature with a flowing tail and flames bursting out of its mouth, I think. Okay. That looks kind of like a dragon slash lion. Sure. Okay. It's called a Kirin. Kirin. Okay. Are you familiar with this? I am not. Here, Kirin, you know, it's a Ichiban Shibori. No. No. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, I think it's probably the most famous Japanese beer. So Asahi could be more fair. I don't know. Anyway, it's 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 a very popular Sapporo? beer in Japan and yep. quite tasty. Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I find really interesting about this is is that the word Kirin in Japanese also means giraffe. Okay. Well, Nick, Nick seems is to nodding know this. His head Nick is this. aware of the giraffe connection. Okay. Yeah. And and I I think that this is absolutely fascinating because the 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 mythical Kirin, the the flaming lion dragon god flying through the sky. Was not a giraffe. Was less weird and more easily believed than the actual giraffe, which no one could wrap their heads around as there being possibly this, true. That there would be this creature out there with, with a, a neck, foot so, neck yeah. covered with spots that would mm-hmm. eat, eat leaves from the top of the trees. And no one was buying that yeah. nonsense yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. The, the, and so as the, it made it sort of like gigantic transcontinental over the Silk Road pilgrimage of the story of the actual giraffe, it morphed into this fire dragon god. Wow. And I think that is just like an amazing sort of game of, of like reverse telephone. telephone. Yeah, yeah. That happened, you know, thousands of years ago. And the characters for writing the the name Kirin yep. in Japanese, and I assume it's the same in Chinese because Japanese characters are all from China originally, are are etymologically very interesting too. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are study Japanese or Chinese characters at all. I assume you don't, but they're 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 formed out of little smaller characters called radicals, and the radicals themselves have sort of some symbolic meaning. And so complicated characters are usually a combination of three or four different radicals. And and sometimes they're put together just in ways that to make them phonetic. So like there's a dominant radical that sounds a certain way and that's just, you know, and it doesn't mean anything, but oftentimes they do mean things like the character for samurai, which is one of the few characters actually that originated in Japan as opposed to Chinese is a combination of the temple and a man. So he's the man of the temple. Oh, okay. And so it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's very interesting how some of them come to be. But the one with it for Kirin is very interesting because the left-hand radical in, in Kirin, in both of the first and the second characters for key, is, stands for deer. And then adding to that is, a, is, a, is an unusual sort of grammatical character that usually means like that or th- that person. Yeah. So it's, it, but it's sort of a, it's like a declaration. It's like that deer. Mm-hmm. But but deer is not literal. It's like they they use the deer radical for all sorts of four legged animals. Okay, uh, you know deer's cows, horses, whatever. You know all sorts of diff- different. Probably not horses actually, but but many 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 animals have the deer radical in their name. And so it's not actually saying this is a deer, but is referring to the giraffe. 
right? That yeah. weird that deer. That weird That weird deer, deer. And the second one also has the deer radical in it, but then the two subsidiary radicals, one is for rice and the other one is for outside. And the rice radical actually refers to the West. Okay. So where it came from, Africa. Oh, okay. Yeah. It came from the West. The yep. story came from the West. And and the outside is obvious. It's like it's not West and not from here. Yeah. So it is the weird, is that weird deer that came far from the West that is not from here. That is what the word actually means if you look at the That's radicals. That's very interesting. And I think that that is like super cool. And the other thing I wanted to just comment on is, is my very favorite movie of all time is The Third Man okay. by um, Carol Reed, excuse me, the British director Carol Reed. And it takes place in, in post-World War II Vienna. And it's all about smuggling of penicillin and, and skullduggery and this sort of weird murder. And it's a fantastic movie and it's got beautiful cinematography. But the thing I love about it is that the screenplay was written by Graham Greene, the famous British yep. author. Yep. who wrote quite a number of, of books that became screenplays. But yep. this one was like, unique in that he wrote it as a screenplay, okay. not as a book that became a screenplay. Okay. And it is one of his most famous, of course. And the cool thing I think about, about this whole sort of Graham Greene writing this book is that, he, you know, Graham Greene, in addition to being sort of a, you know, an insightful observer of human nature and, and, you know, the gritty underside of things and the nature of man and the nature of our souls, even though he was an agnostic, you know, he had this very singular writing style. And one of the funniest anecdotes I know about Graham Greene is that in 1949, there was this magazine called The New Statesman that had a Graham Greene writing contest where people would submit entries to sound like Graham Greene. Uh-huh, yep. And he, under pseudonym, entered this contest and lost. <laughs> I think it's very funny. He did get second prize, so he did oh, pretty right. well. He did okay. He did pretty well. <laughs> He's an okay Graham Greene. And in 1965, he did it again under a different pseudonym, and then this time only got an honorable mention. Oh, but that's the, not the best Graham Greene out there. The beautiful irony is that he, the, 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 the two paragraphs that he had submitted as the, this is, this is trying, trying to sound like Graham Greene, he actually used in a novel that he published. Oh. <laughs> so later on, I mean, it hadn't existed yet. Um, oh, that's very And I thought funny. that was very funny, and I was curious whether there are other others like famous people who had been who had failed to be recognized for who they are. And it turned out that Charlie Chaplin, who was a friend of Graham Greene's when they lived together in Geneva, of all places, they were very close friends somehow. And he had entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and came in third. <laughs> so I think this <laughs> these things happen a lot. Anyway, that's that's all I wanted to. I love it. They've got nothing to do with anything, but no, you know, they don't have to. They yeah. don't have to. We don't expect that from Chris. Yeah. 